0: Today's scripture reading comes from Genesis chapter 18, verses 1 through 15. The Lord appeared to Abraham near the great trees of Mamre while he was sitting at the entrance to his tent in the heat of the day. Abraham looked up and saw three men standing nearby. When he saw them, he hurried from the entrance of his tent to meet them and bowed low to the ground. He said, If I have found favor in your eyes, my lord, do not pass your servant by. Let a little water be brought, and then you may all wash your feet and rest under this tree. Let me get you something to eat, so you can be refreshed, and then go on your way, now that you have come to your servant. Very well, they answered. Do as you say. So Abraham hurried into the tent to Sarah. Quick, he said, get three seahs of flour and knead it and bake some bread. Then he ran to the herd and selected a choice tender calf and gave it to a servant who hurried to prepare it. He then brought some curds and milk and the calf that had been prepared and set these before them. While they ate, he stood near them under a tree. "'Where's your wife, Sarah?' they asked him. "'There in the tent,' he said. Then the Lord said, "'I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, will have a son.' Now Sarah was listening at the entrance to the tent, which was behind him. Abraham and Sarah were already old and well advanced in years, and Sarah was past the age of childbearing. So Sarah laughed to herself as she thought, After I am worn out and my master is old, will I now have this pleasure? Then the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Will I really have a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? I will return to you at the appointed time next year, and Sarah will have a son. Sarah was afraid, so she lied and said, I did not laugh. But he said, yes, you did laugh. This is the word of God.
1: We're looking at the uh, book of Genesis, and we learned so far that the Bible is not just some disparate collection of stories that when you piece together, um, it's not just a collection of stories. Um, It's a single story. Uh, When you stitch the story together, all the pieces, you learn what's wrong with the world and what God is doing to redeem it, what God has done to redeem it. Now, this past month, we've been looking at the life of Abraham, and we said that Abraham lived a remarkable life. He lived what we call a big life, and it's primarily because he lived on the basis of God's call, God's calling of Abraham. God appeared to him, And promised to Abraham that one day God would redeem all the brokenness of the world, all that's broken in the world, through one of Abraham's descendants, a son. And yet now Abraham is 100, and his wife Sarah is around 90 years old, and they've got zero children, and they have zero sons. And so there are three things that we're going to learn about this kind of interesting visit. One is the visit... Two is the laughter. And thirdly, how that becomes our hope. The visit, the laugh, our hope. First, we're going to look at the visit, these three visitors. In this passage, Abraham, he meets three men near a tent. In verse 2, he bows low to them. In verses 3 to 5, he offers them water. He offers them an opportunity to freshen up. He offers them rest. He offers them a meal. Three times he uses the word hurry. Uh, you see the urgency in Abraham to be able to c- accommodate these three men in verse 2 and 6 and 7. And then four times we see that Abraham fetched something or called for something to fetch something in verse 4 and 5 and 7. Eight. There's this rapid pace of, of, of accommodating these three uh, men that have come. And the reason is because in the culture of their day, in this desert culture, hospitality to strangers is very important. In this ancient culture... And this Bedouin desert culture, hospitality to those who are just passing through because the desert is harsh, very, very important. And so Abraham, according to scholars, was demonstrating uh, good behaviors, good practices, best practices, if you will, of Bedouin life. There's no indication that he ever met these men before. There's no indication that Abraham even knew it was God who was speaking to him, that God met, met with him, until verse 10, one of them speaks Verse 10, one of them speaks, and he repeats God's promise that he will have a son. Now, Abraham at that point in verse 10 must have realized that he was speaking to God because the only person, the only other person apart from Sarah that could have known this promise in this vast desert land, in this arid and dry climate, is the person that made the promise. That's the only other person who could have known. And, you know, because Abraham kept it a secret. You see, Abraham knew what God had told him. Abraham trusted. There were vivid reminders every day of what we saw last week in Genesis chapter 15. There was the lightning. There was the blaze, the fire, the torch, the animals, the contract, the covenant. Abraham knew. Abraham believed. Abraham trusted You know, God already appeared to Abraham uh, very, very poignantly, but he never appeared to Sarah. He never appeared to Sarah. And here in this passage, God is asking for Sarah. Sarah wasn't there with Abraham. Sarah didn't see God. Sarah didn't hear God. But notice, when he finally comes to Sarah, God's approach in visiting Sarah is very different from his visit, his approach to Abraham. For instance, God visits Abraham several times in a 25-year period. But here with Sarah, he meets Sarah twice in one year. He visits Abraham in the darkness, at sunset. But he visits Sarah in the daytime, around noon. He visits Abraham through a blazing torch, a smoking fire pot, a blaze. But to Sarah, he comes in person, in body, on foot. To Abraham, God comes to Abraham with a contract, a covenant. Take these animals, cut them in half. Abraham knew exactly what to do because he was a merchant. He's very familiar with ancient covenantal uh, agreements. But to Sarah, he comes weary. He comes as a guest in her home. Why the two approaches? Abraham is a businessman. Abraham is a male. He's a patriarch in his day. So he understood very clearly the language of contracts. He understood that. Uh, but Sarah, Sarah is an old woman. Sarah is a barren woman, which means that she was cast out. She was an outcast. And God had to come then and speak into Sarah, into her soul. She needed a person. You see that? What does this tell you about God? Sometimes God comes to us in a fire. He comes to us in a torch. He comes to us in a Shekinah glory. We have these awful, awesome experiences of God. Other times, he comes on foot. He comes gentle. He comes with peace, with comfort, weary. Sometimes he comes for the patriarch, the person who's high in status. He comes to the man. He comes to uh, the leader. He comes for the businessman, the wealthy, the higher person on the social ladder. And other times he comes for the barren woman, the outcast, the poor, the low person on the social ladder. God's grace transcends every gender, God's grace transcends every status, every social standing. And if God's grace uh, transcends every gender, uh, social more, status, social standing, educational uh, standing, then surely you can transcend all these things if you believe in Him. In verse 9, uh, uh, when he asked, where is your wife Sarah, he didn't ask because he didn't know. He didn't ask that because he didn't know. He wanted Sarah's attention. Why? Because when we hear, we read here in verse 10, Sarah was eavesdropping on this conversation. Sarah is this old woman. She's like 90 years old. In verses 11 and 12, when she hears this news, she laughs to herself, and she basically says this, after I'm worn out, And Abraham is old. Will I now have this pleasure? She's not talking about the pleasure of having children. She's not talking about the joy of having children. If you actually look at the Hebrew word that they use for pleasure here, and I'm not going to go into the nuances of this, it's a reference to sexual pleasure. In other words, in Sarah's brain, in her mind, he's saying, at this point, you're saying that Abraham and I are going to experience enough sexual pleasure. I'm too old to even be having sex anymore. Abraham probably hasn't touched her in years. Abraham was probably disappointed in her because she tried and she tried. This is the promise. You were supposed to fulfill this promise. Decades have passed and there's no children. And now she's too old. She's way past that age where physical beauty is relevant in marriage or even in life. You ever see 90-year-old women walking around in the city? You see them a lot walking around the city because they live in the city, Queen Village or any of these places. You ever see a 90-year-old woman still trying to look like she's 25? It's weird. It's weird. It's uncomfortable, right? There's always a part of you that's wondering, like, is she okay? Right? You think that way because that's not what 90-year-olds focus on. She knows that. And she's barren. Sarah is barren in a culture that exalts fertility, in a culture that exalts beauty because that's all women bring to the table in, that ancient, in those ancient times. And so Sarah doesn't even come out of her tent. She doesn't come out of her tent to demonstrate hospitality in this good, hospitable, social environment Sarah says, I'm forgotten. I've been left behind. I'm barren. I'm alone. And that's why God comes to her personally, on foot, literally came down and crossed every boundary to meet her in person. And so God travels through the desert, braves the heat, seeks her out, and speaks to her and from this truth we learn a few things one god is drawn to the marginalized he's drawn to the outcasts abraham got fire because abraham's a patriarch he's a businessman he's mighty in a way he's in so he got hit but outcasts they don't have a way in Sarah didn't even come out of the tent. Outcasts don't have a way in, but God had to seek her and call for her in person and speak to her in person. You know what that means? Sarah has a place. And here's this woman who's now way past any age where people are taken seriously in some ways. She's got no social standing. She's barren. She's old. She's beyond beauty, and yet she has a place with God. And if someone like Sarah has a place with God, then anyone can have a place with God. In fact, it's when Sarah had nothing left to bring to the table that God literally brings her to the table. You see that? That's the prerequisite to have, to acknowledge that you have nothing left to bring to the table. You don't connect with God because you're able. Look at Sarah, she's not able. She's not capable. It's all by God's grace, God's grace alone. Now, next, why did God seek Sarah? And it's because of this. Abraham had a real experience with God, but Sarah hasn't yet had that experience. She needed her own experience with God. The gospel is a personal gospel. It's personal news that you need to take in, you need to digest, you need to own. Now, I'm sure that when Abraham came back from Genesis chapter 15 and went home, she had spoken and reminded Sarah of this promise that God made with him many, many times. But Abraham's experience, the reality is Abraham's experience was not Sarah's experience. So it wasn't personal to her. It wasn't real to her. After all these years, she needed her own personal experience with God. You know what that means? It's not just enough to take on someone else's experience of faith in God. Now, we live in Philadelphia. In Philadelphia, um, you know, we're kind of uh, blessed as a city. And in, in some ways, it's a blessing because we have some big seminaries here in the city. And people come from all over to attend this seminary. And you know, one, just from my observation of seminary students over the years, generally, you know, I don't have anything against people going to seminary. It's, a, it's important. If you're going to study to be a pastor, you have to go to school. You have to get an education. And it's got to be somewhat formal. But um, you know, my observation of people who attend seminary, um, generally, it, it's, they're taking a lot of distilled digestive thought that have come from people who had very, very personal experiences with God and happen to be brilliant in particular areas, and they focus on the brilliance, and they don't focus on it being personal. And they become your pastors. That's what happens. Imagine a congregation where people who haven't made the gospel personal bring this gospel to you. It doesn't become personal. Now, it's not their fault. You see it right here. You can't take their experience of the gospel and make that your own. Because then it's going to dist- it's going to be distorted. It's going to hurt you. It's going to distort you and your view of God. A lot of times, you know, we have people, um, you know, when they're teaching. A lot of times, we tend to say to ourselves, "Well, I've heard this before. I know this stuff. You know, I know what that means." What that really means is what's personal to that person is not very personal to me. That's what you're really saying. What you're really saying is, you know, it may get you. What you just shared, it may get you. It may be relevant to you, but I already know this stuff. So it's not really that relevant to me. But what you're really saying is, um, I'm, I'm really, I've been relying on somebody else's experience, and it doesn't get me anymore at this stage in life. It doesn't work for me anymore. It may have worked for somebody else. It doesn't work for me. You see, how do you counteract that? What you got to do is what did Sarah do? She was in her own tent and she eavesdropped. That's what she did. How do you do that? You got to pray. You got to go to God's word. You got to worship personally. You got to plug into community groups. You got to plug into Sunday schools. You got to plug into the different fellowships that are offered. You know why? Because those things holistically are a way for you to eavesdrop and listen in on what God is saying. And as you do that, um, it starts to shape you. It starts to change you. Uh, lastly, that mean, what it means is that sometimes God comes in a fire in these acute moments, these intense moments. Maybe it's a suffering. Maybe it's a storm. But in other times, God comes over a process, a journey, over meals and meals, over uh, just an intimate moment, over over times of comfort, over times of peace, over times where maybe you just kind of you're just kind of stagnant in this kind of alone place, maybe even. Sometimes God comes in a blaze, and other times God comes over an extended stay, a visit. Now, of course, there are in either of those types of experiences, the truths have to be the same. There are core foundational beliefs in our Christian experience. I believe I'm a sinner. I believe that I need to be saved. I, need, I cannot save myself. I believe that salvation is only by the grace of God through Jesus Christ and only through Jesus Christ. But sometimes we come to God because we're overwhelmed by something that has happened. Other times we come to God because we're just overwhelmed by the comfort of his grace and his peace. But the one thing you can never do is to impose your experience of salvation and say that has to be the experience that everybody else has. you got the core foundational truths that have to be the same, but beyond that, you can't impose how you came, how God has approached you, and say that's the way, and be dogmatic about it. You can't do that. That's the visit. Now let's talk about this laughter, Sarah's Laughter. We need some context here. you got to see that children, women contributed. The only currency that a woman contributed in her day is uh, her children. Children were the currency. That's the way a woman became a hero. That's the way uh, a woman helped a family feel rich. Because the more sons you had, your sons meant that you had free labor, right? You didn't have to spend money and labor in this agrarian society, in this Bedouin society. And so the more children you had, you had more hands. The more hands, you, you, can, you can sustain more life, right? You had more land, you can sustain more life, and that's how you grew wealthy. And so children were your 401k program. Children were your pension. And as a result, the more children a woman had, the greater her worth was. It represented blessing. We see that a lot in our Eastern cultures, our Eastern and Near Eastern cultures, even today. Right? But the problem was Sarah was around 90 years old and she had no children. She always wanted children. She didn't have any children. So she was desperate for children. And desperation at the age of 90, she has now all but given up. She has given up on herself. At one point, <clears throat> Sarah had Abraham sleep with Sarah's maidservant Hagar. It was a failed plan. It left Sarah uh, envious, covetous, jealous. It left her distrustful and bitter. And now she is old and she is cynical and she's still barren. And so she is empty. In a culture that values beauty and fertility, she is no longer desirable in any sense of the word. And in verse 12, she uses this phrase. She says, I'm now, after I'm worn out, she says, after I'm worn out? And when she says that, she's, saying, she's not saying, I'm tired. I'm too tired to have sex. That's not what she's saying. She's saying, I'm like old clothing. I'm used up. I'm worn through. That's the language right there. And so here God arrives and gives Sarah exactly what she needs to hear. In verse 14, God repeats his promise. Now, look at the love of God. Look at God's love. Sarah feels worthless. And God here says, I see you. I hear you. I've come for you. I hear your sigh. Sarah is filled with self loathing, self hate. She doesn't even want people to see her. And God says, I have come for you. You are more than worth this trip. I love you. Sarah has pretty much given up on herself. And God says, You need to come to the table. I'm seeking. I came for you. Sarah laughs at God. Sarah laughs at the promise. She scoffs at it. But God is so gentle. God asks, why did Sarah laugh? I mean, it's not that God doesn't know why Sarah laughed. God knows. He wants her to know that he's listening. God knows why she's laughing. He wants her to know herself. Sarah laughs because there's no outlet for her. There's no horizon for her. So imagine Sarah, she's listening on the source of worth. And the source of worth is saying, you are worthy. And she's mocking that. She's going to the source of power because she needs power. And she's lost power. She has no power. She comes to the source of power. And God says, you will have power. And she, she laughs, she mocks. She's mocking, she's laughing in disbelief, she's laughing in bitterness, she's scoffing because of her own self-hatred. The years have been hard, and she lost a sense of wonder. She's been hardened by the years. Now, I know this, this is very important, because I know that there are many stories of why people came to Metro here. Many of you, based on my personal conversations with you, you've left the church. You've left the church for years, over the years, because over the years you've lost a sense of wonder, the gospel stopped being amazing to you. There's been no outlet, really, for you to deal with your doubts and your insecurities and your fears, and, and you know, what God has promised has become lesser than what you need. And so you left. Ultimately, you left. There were no answers to that. And so no matter how good a preacher is, no matter how bad a preacher is, when today, when you hear the amazing promise of God, we tend to scoff. Amazing grace, it's really like this. It's more like a lackluster promise. How bitter to the sound, that abandoned a worn-out soul like mine, like me. There's this bitter, burnt-out, damaged loss of wonder in your life. And as time passes, it's hard to trust God's promises. It gets really, really hard. It's hard to trust God's promises when you've put everything into your marriage, when you put everything into your spouse, and your spouse has failed you miserably. It's hard to trust God's promises when your child is sick. Other children are healthy. Your child is sickly. It's hard to trust God's promises when your parents, who worked so hard to bring you here and give you this life, all they wanted was some peace, and now they're sick and they're dying. It's hard to trust God's promises. It's hard to focus on God's promises when that business that you poured into, when that career that you worked so hard for, you lose that business. You lose that job. When you're single, it's hard to trust that God's presence is enough, that desperation, you see. It's hard to trust God's promises when right now, your life is dry and you feel worn out. You know why, why that bitter laughter? Um, one of my favorite short story writers is Rainer Maria Roca. She's a 19th, he's a 19th century, uh, a French uh, a philosopher and a, a writer and a poet as well. He wrote a very simple story called Gym Class. It's a very simple story. Um, it really got me when I read it. The background is, is there's this military school and this is 19th century Austria Bohemia, so 19th century, right before World War, the turn of the century, uh, you know, you got World War I just about to happen on the brink. And so these children are in military school. At a very young age, they've lost their childhood. They're being trained to kill and to fight. And so they're experiencing horrors as children. We're talking like children, your children, their age. They're sent away to this boarding school where they're just experiencing abuse and horror. And these children, they have no place where they can share their fears, no place where they can express their doubts and their questions. No one's going to explain these tragedies to a boy. And so they're taught to just repress it, to, to harden to it, to be disciplined. And as this one gym class ends, one of the children breaks out of that mold and decides to go beyond what his teacher instructs and essentially kills himself. It's a horrible story in a sense. And these children are just left to deal with it because how does the boarding school deal with it? Forget it, repress it. They just kind of take them away and life goes on. And now these children all the more have no, no way to express what, what they've seen and how to rationalize it, make sense of it. Uh, Rilke is one of the premier existential authors in his day. And, and basically what you see is this one child at the end just starts laughing uncontrollably. Why? It's so because Ruka says there's two kinds of laughter. There's this is hearty laughter that's filled with life when you're hopeful. And then there's this bitter laughter that comes out that you can't control when you're confused, when you're desperate, when you're bitter. God says to Sarah, you will have a son, and Sarah her her allergic reaction is is to laugh that's what she does she's lost her wonder and so god in verse 14 asks is there anything too hard for the lord the word hard here he's not saying is anything too difficult for god that's not what he's saying when god asks when god's asking is there anything too wonderful is there anything too amazing is there anything too impossible for the lord and it's at this moment sarah realizes who she's talking to who she's hearing and so verse 15, the text says, she was afraid, and so she lies. Again, it's like a gut reaction when we fear. One of the allergic reactions that we have to, to being found out is what? We lie, right? And so she says, I didn't laugh. Look at the patience of God. Look at the grace of God. He could have easily said, all right, it's time for me to, aha! Like if it wasn't for you meddling kids, you know, he sits them down. and start, he, That's not what he does. What he says is he doesn't tear her down. She's already torn down. He doesn't break her down. She's already broken. He doesn't wear her out with a sermon. She's already worn out. He doesn't sit there and say, well, you see, your theology, your doctrine of God is very, very wrong. He doesn't do that. That's not what he does. In fact, there's no judgment. There's no anger. He acknowledges, right? But he promised before she even laughed. He promised before she even lied. The promise came before the lie. Verse 10 the promise, verse 15, the lie. That's amazing grace. See, that's the beginning of her experience. Because what this tells us is that God, that you can approach God in your anger. You can approach God in your doubt. You can approach God in your grief. He will cross every boundary to meet you in your honesty. Right? What that means is, God, sometimes I feel ugly. Sometimes, or you just look in the mirror and you say, You know what, God, I'm ugly. I struggle with this. I've got issues with this. And it's just not my physical appearance. I have terrible character, and I'm trying to come to grips with it. I am a failure. It's not just a failure in business. It's not just a failure in my work, although that oftentimes is a source of a lot of people's failed egos, broken egos. But I'm not just a failure in my work. I'm a moral failure. I'm a broken person. And you know what? I don't trust you. I'm hurt by you. Sometimes I feel angry at you. You can go to God in your doubts. You can go to God in your anger. You know why? Because he hears her sigh. He already knows. He already knows. And yet he travels all the way back, all the way to talk to Sarah. God's love, God's promises, it's not because he wants something more from you, he wants you. He wants you. So he crosses every boundary to get to you. And oftentimes he's clearing every barrier that's in the way of having you. That's God. That's amazing grace. God's love is not a patriarchal love. It's not a distant love. It's not a chauvinistic love. You know, what do I mean by that? A lot of times in Asian cultures, you have a patriarchal, distant love. It's still love. They provide in every way. They, they give in every way. But it's a patriarchal love. It's a condescending love. It's a distant love. It's a, sometimes a chauvinistic love. And that creates an insecure type of relationship, right, where you feel like you need to live up to things. You need, it, it makes you desire wealth, desire beauty, God's love is big for the outcast. God's love is big for the foreign person, for the lost person, the used up person, the burnt out person, the worn out person. And that is Sarah. And that's the prerequisite. If you haven't come to grips, if you haven't owned the fact that you are worn out or worn through or broken or bitter or lost sometimes, completely lost, You know, one of my favorite pastors, uh, preachers, and and writers in the day, someone who's influenced me greatly, and particularly um, this city, uh, churches in the city, is Jack Miller. Now, Jack Miller, a very down-to-earth person, when he came to the gospel, I mean, ministry was just taking off, but his wife lagged behind. In fact, in your community groups, you're reading pretty much her biography, her autobiography, or her account of how she came to the gospel. That's what you're reading in your community groups she lagged behind so here's his life it's joyful and it's vibrant but she says i'm living like an orphan like i don't have a father you see god's the prerequisite it wasn't until you recognized the ugliness and the immorality and the anger and the pride and the jealousy and this your superiority complex over other people right your doubt and your fears against god that's the prerequisite for you to actually come to god and experience God, because God says, "There's no barrier, there's no boundary, there's no desert or wilderness or heat that I will not cross to come to you." Psalm eighty-eight is a very peculiar psalm. Psalm eighty-eight is peculiar because the entire psalm is about rejection. It's about bitterness. It's about anger. It's, it, it just ends that way. There's no most psalms. There's like you know, <laughs> you know, I, these psalmists are amazing because they're like, "I'm being tortured. I'm dying." but I will trust in the Lord. and I mean, that is like an amazing psalm to me. I mean, you think about these psalms. They are amazing, right? Because we don't think that way, right? We're cursing and throwing our fists in the air, right? But these psalmists, they're like, you know, I'm sick. My, I can feel my bones drying up, but you are my God and my Savior. Like, it's amazing, right? But Psalm 88 ain't like that. You know why? Because Psalm 88 is for people like us, Psalm 88 is a very raw prayer about rejection and bitterness and anger, and it just it kind of ends that way. You know why it's there? Because it's a prayer still. This psalmist is bitter, but he's still praying to God. He's still coming to God. Sarah ain't looking for God. She ain't acknowledging God. She ain't thanking God. She ain't seeking God. And yet she's speaking to God. <laughs> and she's lying to God. But God is gentle and humble and faithful because he sees our brokenness and he's made a way for us and he's made a way to us. There's no other faith like this. There's no other God like this. I don't know what God you grew up with. I don't know what Jesus you studied when you were a child. There is no God like this who wants us to be honest about our bitterness, wants to be honest about our pain, wants us to be honest about our sin. You can go to him. You can trust in him that he is gracious he hears your sigh. And in time, Sarah bears a son. In Genesis chapter 21, Sarah exclaims, God has brought me laughter. Two kinds of laughter. The first one, cynical laughter. That's what she had. And now she says, God has brought me laughter. He's renewed my laughter. It's the hopeful, joyful laughter. She names him Isaac because such an irony, the son of laughter. Why? Because that, every time she looks at Isaac, she sees, I was so sinful and so distrusting and so doubtful and angry and bitter at God, and yet I'm laughing out of joy today when I look at this child that God has provided for me. Before she laughed because it couldn't be true. Now she's laughing because it's too good to be true. You see that? Her wonder is restored. Is anything impossible for God? Is anything too amazing for God? Does God sit there and hear your prayer and not answer? Because, no, no, I can't do that. That's, that's way, way above my pay grade. Is that what God says? No. If God is powerful enough to answer it, he's going to be wise enough to give it to you in the right time if you need it. If it's going to bless you. If it's going to grow you. If it's going to make you like his child. You see? You see? Because that's his goal. I don't know what your goal is. That's his goal. In Genesis 21, uh, Sarah says, God has brought me laughter. And everyone that hears me is now going to be laughing at me. That's basically what she says, right? She's looking at herself, this 90-year-old woman nursing a baby. And she's saying, that's funny. That's gross. That's weird. People are going to laugh but God sees me, and that's why I'm laughing. See? She knew she was loved and that there is nothing too wonderful for God. Before, Sarah's questioning her worth. Doesn't even want to come in front of people, strangers, because inevitably they're going to ask you, where are your children? How many children you got? And she has to explain herself, and that is hard for a woman. That is tough in her day and age, at 90 they say, I have that none. My life is hopeless. Then they go, Oh, you see? She doesn't want to see that. It took twenty-five years for her to discover that her true worth is not in her beauty, is not in her figure, it's not in her how many children she has. It's not even in her husband and her husband's success, but in God's love demonstrated through God's promise that shaped her for the rest of her life and changed her. I don't know what's shaping you and changing you. What will shape the behavior of a person? Most of the times, we are so shaped by the things that we desire and love, and we we take that in, and we want that so badly, and it shapes you. Generally, if you desire money and crave money, that desire for money will shape you. It will turn you into a very greedy, stingy, selfish person. If you're looking for a spouse, it will make you a very desperate person, It will make you a very selfish person. It will make you a very fake person. If you're desperate for friendships, relationships, because you're not good at keeping relationships, you will act a certain way in a way that you think will garner friendships and approval. You see that? It will shape you and change you. Sarah says it took her 25 years to realize that none of these things are even worth hooking into to shape her, but it's the love of God and the promise of God that shaped her and changed her life. And if that's what she's got, and she didn't get the full picture, she died before she got the whole story, then what is our hope? And I'm going to end this very quickly. What is our hope? Before we do that, first I'm going to tell you the trap. People often apply this text, and I'm telling you growing up, I've heard this a lot. Expect big things from God. Pray big prayers to God. I want you to be bold and pray. I want you to get on your knees and pray hard. Expect these impossible things from God. It's incredibly flawed. Why? You think that's what got Sarah's son? Because nowhere in this text does it show you that that's what it took. Her joy didn't come because she expected anything from God. She didn't didn't want to see visitors. She didn't expect great things from God. She scoffed at God's promise. She wasn't looking for God's promise to be fulfilled. She laughed at God. Sarah's joy renewed when she beheld the promise fulfilled. And just like Sarah who was renewed, when we beheld God's son, we can be renewed because he is our son of promise. Hail the heaven-born prince of peace. Hail the son of righteousness. Light and life to all he brings, risen with healing in his wings. Mild he lays his glory by, born that men will no more may die. Born to raise the son of earth, born to give us second birth. Sarah only saw part of the story, but she plugged into that part of the story, and it gave her second birth but we can see the entire story. How much more can the entire story give us a second birth? Throughout the Bible, you see the concept of barrenness. Barrenness meant you were abandoned in society. It was a curse in Sarah's culture. But in Scripture, whenever you see barrenness, it's a clue. you got to look into that because usually it's a clue that God's presence is abounding. Because God always pursues the younger person, the weaker person, the ugly person, the barren person, the empty person. And so if you've been rejected, if you've been abandoned, if you're empty, you got to set the stage, right? God pursues Jacob over Esau. Jacob was the younger. God pursued David, who was the youngest of eight children, right? And he had a heart for the barren. Abraham's wife, Sarah, was barren. She gave birth to Isaac. Isaac was the son of promise. Abraham's son, Isaac, marries Rebekah. Rebekah was barren, right? But she gave birth to Jacob, and Jacob was the son of promise. Jacob marries Leah and Rachel. Leah was the ugly one. Leah was the unattractive wife, the one that she had to take on. He had to take on And yet God's heart was on Leah, the broken, the ugly one, because through Leah was born Judah, who's the line of kings, and that was the line where Jesus was born. Rachel was barren, and she gives birth to Joseph and Benjamin. All the way up to 1 Samuel, Hannah was barren. Hannah gives birth to Samuel, the last great judge of Israel. Then you go all the way to the New Testament. In Luke chapter 1, you have Elizabeth, the wife of a priest. She was barren, but now she is with child. The angel tells Mary she will be with child, and she gives birth to John the Baptist. Elizabeth had a cousin named Mary. Mary was a virgin, no children. In Luke chapter 1, the angel tells Mary, you will give birth to a child. You know how she responds? How can this be? In other words, This is impossible. She's skeptical. She's mocking. She's nervous. She's fearful. But the angel responds in verse 37 of Luke chapter 1, there is nothing impossible with God. Hundreds of years later, that angel says virtually the same thing to Mary as God says to Sarah. And why? Because Jesus is going to be the greater Isaac. Isaac. Jesus is going to be the ultimate fulfillment of the son of promise. Jesus is going to be the one who's going to redeem all the brokenness in our world. And so on the cross, Jesus Christ suffered, and he died to give us a lasting hope and a lasting joy. So Sarah laughed, and he mocked at God's promise. Because of the promise, on the cross, the people laughed at Jesus, and they mocked Jesus, and they scoffed at Jesus Christ. And they said, yeah, you're the promise, you're the son, then come down. In other words, that is impossible. And so there was a bitter laugh. And Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In other words, what he's saying is what? I am the one who's truly abandoned. I'm the one who's truly been left aside, left alone, rejected, and now I am being worn through. He's literally just suffering and wasting away on the cross, and he's suffering the ultimate loss, the ultimate bitterness, the ultimate desert. He says, I'm thirsty, the ultimate joylessness, the wrath of God, the true curse of God is now pouring out on Jesus, and so he's experiencing the heat and the anger and the storm, and he says, I am barren, I am empty, I have no promise, God. God has left me why because jesus christ is the ultimate son of promise who gave up the intimacy with the father so that we would have ultimate intimacy with god we have access to god we have the love of god the embrace of god jesus christ drank the bitterness of god to the end every last drop so that we could have every great drop of joy And so he says, one day we will come together and we will drink together. You know why? Because wine in the Old Testament represented joy. That's what he does. He wasn't without joy. In Hebrews chapter 12, the author says, when Jesus Christ was on the cross, it was for the joy that was set before him. That means that he still had joy. He was suffering and dying in his circumstance, in his brokenness, in his worn-through, worn-out state. He still had joy, and his joy was what? It was for the joy that was set before him, that he scorned the cross. You see that? Experienced the bitter end of the cross. It was his joy to see you have joy, to see you have peace, to see you have God's presence, to see you and experience God's promise. You see that? You will laugh. So you can laugh. And so he cried. You've forsaken me. And so he hurt. And so he was barren. You know, God was barren. God lost his son. God was barren. Surely God hears our sighs the deeper that truth goes into your life, to the degree and the extent that you trust that, you will have joy. When the gospel is not at the center of your life, you're going to laugh at times because you worked hard and you failed. And so any laughter or promise you hear, it's going to result in some sort of bitter laugh. But when the gospel goes deeper, it's going to restore your wonder. Me? I mean, this is impossible. A guy like me? and I'm believing in Jesus, that is impossible. This is amazing. You see, you can laugh at yourself. How little you trusted God. How skeptical you've been. How often you scoffed at God. How often you thought that your guilt was greater than God's grace. How often thought that you could pursue something and that that would be the answer to all of your brokenness and your problems. You'll laugh at yourself. And Isaac, you know, what you can do is you can name, remember, and name, give these things a name. Sarah gave the name to her symbol, representation of God's grace and her futility. He named him Isaac so she will always remember to laugh. You can name it too. You can come up with a name to say this represents my failure and God's faithfulness. This represents my futility and God's ability. This represents my sinfulness and God's righteous goodness in my life. It doesn't matter. One thing you learn in the scriptures, it doesn't matter how the magnitude of your faith, the magnitude of your trust is not what's important. It's that you trust. How much trust do you need to have to be saved? You need enough trust, just enough to be saved, right? To turn to Christ. It will rebuild your entire self-image. If a person like Sarah can be redeemed, you can be redeemed. We trust it. Let's pray.